brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. We uh, we once again now have video up and running on YouTube, so we're we're doing it all. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on SoundCloud, we're now on um, uh, what was the other Spotify? one? Spotify. Spotify. I'm like forgetting names here. And uh, I mean Scott, of course. Jack Murphy is here, and if you're watching the video, you see right here Kyle Mills, author of Red War, and it's a honor to have you on for the first time. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so to, to give some background on, on Kyle, and I, of course, want to you know, hear it from you uh, first and foremost and, and a little bit more in depth. But Kyle is the author of Red War, the Mitch Rapp novel series, which began with American Assassin in 2010 by Vince Flynn. Now, this this was a little confusing to me, admittedly, at first. Um, so some might not know the book was the the Mitch Rapp novel series was originally started by Vince Flynn in 2010. 17 books in the series, but the last four were written by you as you were brought on board after the tragic death of uh, Vince Flynn in 2013 from prostate cancer. And, uh, you know, I'd love to hear about your background and also, of course, like how you got brought on to be a part of this legendary series by a legendary author who's no longer with us. Yeah, it is. It's strange. It's an incredibly confusing series, actually, because American Assassin, which came out in 2010, is the first uh, book in Mitch Rapp's story, but it was actually like the 10th book written. So that's a prequel. And then it went on to another after that and then back to current time. And it's uh, and then I took over. Yeah. In uh, like 2014, I think would have been my first book, um, which was The Survivor. So. I took over after Vince wrote The Last Man, and he had written three pages of The Survivor, uh, and I got a a call asking me if I wanted to continue the series, and I'd always been a huge fan of it ever since the beginning, so I thought it'd be fun, and it has been. How did you get started as a writer, though, and, uh, you know, before being brought in to, you know, take up the mantle for, uh, for Mitch Rapp? I'd been a writer for quite a while already. I'd written uh, probably like 10 books of my own. And then I worked uh, for the Robert Ludlum estate for a little while Mm -hmm. and did uh, uh, like three Robert Ludlum books. And, you know, I'd gotten back into it. I was really young when I started writing books, like 29. And honestly, I got into it because I thought it'd be fun to write a novel and not because I thought I'd ever get it published or anything. (laughs) It was just something creative to do. And, um, I wanted to build furniture, but I didn't have any tools and I wasn't very handy. So this seemed like the next best thing. What, what was your first novel about? 
It was about a kind of a group of vigilantes dumping a ton of poison into the narcotic supply to get people to stop taking drugs oh, or and to kill the people who who kept doing it. That's interesting. So uh, was the, the spy, you know, espionage genre something you were you were interested in kind of from the get go then? Yeah, you know, I'd always been a fan of that genre. I'd read a ton. And uh, my father had been an FBI agent for 25 years. He'd been the director of Interpol and the legal attache to the United Kingdom. So oh, wow. my entire life was just surrounded by CIA, FBI, MI6, spec ops guys. So almost out of laziness, I thought, well, I know all these guys, so <laughs> it'd probably be easy to write a book about them. Yeah, it must have been interesting growing up uh, with some of that intrigue in the background. I, I was reading in the news that the Chinese government detained and is holding the president of Interpol right now, who's apparently a Chinese national. And it's just like, you got to wonder what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I think my father got out just in time. Yeah, um, it, it is. I mean, it, it's, it was fascinating. I mean, all the stories that I heard and the incredible people that I met and it uh, it all sort of gelled in my mind over my entire life. I never thought I'd do anything with it other than have, you know, some fun stories to tell at bars. But it turns out uh, I was glad I was paying attention, and it's, it's become part of a lot of my books. Oh, what are some of those things that kind of, like, have led into actual plot lines in the novels that might tickle the audience if they were to, you know, pick up one of your novels? Well, one of them was uh, a friend of mine who had been an FBI agent for many years and became the head of security for a bunch of casinos and uh, in Vegas. And he, he said to me one day, how do you think we get all the money out of Vegas? And I'd never really thought about the fact that people go into Vegas with a lot of money. Vegas takes all their money and they leave without it. Right. And it has to get down to the San Francisco, uh, into the Federal Reserve. And I thought I had all these great things in my mind that, you know, somebody probably had, I don't know, you know, a tunnel or something. But he said, no, we just shovel it all onto onto trucks and drive it across. So it's the literally the loneliest road in America. And I thought, I bet I could steal that. Yeah, perfect. And I spent two weeks driving up and down that road trying to figure out how I'd steal it. Yeah, because, I mean, why hit a casino or a bank that's just loaded full of security when you can, you know, do a transit heist uh, where there's much lower security and probably half, if not all of the armed guards are probably told by the insurance companies not to put up a fight? Yeah, exactly. And it's it turns out it's really easy to uh, steal it, but it's really hard to hold on to it because (laughs) it's one road with nowhere to turn off it. And it's hundreds and hundreds of miles long. And they track everything about the trucks. So you can't even emergency brake without somebody knowing it. Um, it ended up being way easier to steal actually at the Fed in San Francisco. So that's how I figured out you'd have uh, to do interesting. it. Yeah. No, that's a good one. I, I never would have thought of that either. Nah. Yeah. Who, who, who would? But I mean, it's tons, literally tons and tons of cash. So... But yeah, things like that and, you know, some some spec ops guys I, I knew um, turned into a character called Fade, who was kind of this crazy Navy SEAL who had a bullet in his back and he was slowly going paralyzed. And, um, you know, other other characters became composites in my books that people would probably recognize. So it was kind of it sure made, it definitely made it a lot easier. And you got to also remember, I started out before the Internet. So research used to be 
yeah. a nightmare for <laughs> stuff like this. I mean, you literally had when I wrote <clears throat> Sphere of Influence, nobody knew if Al Qaeda was really the name of that terrorist organization. Yeah. They just they just thought it might be a translation of where they were. And so, you know, you had to track down the CIA guys to find out and 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 get confirmation of that. It's funny you mention that because I remember in the in the this is the early days of the internet. It was you know probably the 90, 98 maybe or something like that. I was just a kid and I was interested in joining the military and all that. So I was always of course trying to research things and like you said, research prior to the internet was like going to the library. Um, it, it was a whole different world when the internet came around. I was like, Oh, look, I can type, uh, whatever I want into this search engine and research whatever terrorist organization uh, I want. And, uh, I remember reading about Al Qaeda back then I was, I would have been in high school. And I remember the reporting on the internet at the time was that this was probably a mythological organization that it probably wasn't even real. Yeah. And I if I remember right, it was a long time ago, but it, uh, Translated just to like the base, the base or something. Yeah. So yeah, nobody really knew if that's what they called it or if that was just the base or, and so I was trying to write kind of, you know, a cutting edge thriller at the time that this coming <laughs> terrorist organization was going to do something. And, uh, it was bad timing actually, because I sort of imagined them doing something very similar to nine 11. And, um, I turned it in like a week before nine 11. So oh, shit, really? my, my editor sent it back and said, this is unpublishable. So the book had to be completely rewritten. Wow. What what was the the plot, uh, the terrorist plot in, in that novel that kind of it was very the similar, like an attack on the you know an attack on. I used rockets, but it was an attack on the Pentagon and on a major uh, building, you know, a major commercial building. So it's funny people don't think of the fact that you come up with your ideas eighteen months ahead of time, and then right. you hope they're still relevant when you when when the book comes out. But you hope you haven't been overtaken by history. And in that case, I was overtaken by and had to rewrite it so it was very different. Because, you know, it would have seemed like I was capitalizing on the event. People wouldn't oh, say, yeah. oh, no, that book was probably written a year before, you know, that event occurred. Yeah, I mean, I can see what you're saying. I mean, it can go either way. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you'll seem like some sort of genius uh, <laughs> that can predict the future. And, you know, the Rand Corporation will come knocking on your door. Um, so it's always funny when, you know, if you're an author, uh, a novelist that's able to predict the future, like, um, who's the French author who's kind of well known for doing that several times. He wrote a book about Benghazi before Benghazi happened. Um, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's eluding me at the moment, but you always or Tom Clancy was another one who was known for doing that kind of thing. And, and yeah. people see it as prophetic, um, when they look in the rearview mirror, but, on the other hand, I can see why the publisher would be scared shitless of publishing something like that, uh, especially right after 9-11. Everyone was scared. Yeah, exactly. And it was such a tragedy. And, you know, you didn't want to be seen as somebody who's trying to, you know, get publicity off that. Yeah, and, ride uh, the coattails. So, um, so, yeah, quite a, a bit of a scare and a few months of, of completely rewriting, you know, a 500-page book. <laughs> but, um in the end, it uh, it worked out, but um, yeah, there's the kind of things you, know, you suffer from if you're a thriller writer because if you don't write stuff that feels really current and right. urgent, people the, the book's not that interested. People don't want to read it, so um, you're always kind of keeping your fingers crossed. 
Which, which by the way, the the current book does go into that category of current and urgent with the Russia connection. I, I want to get into that, but uh, we touched on it at the very beginning of the interview. But I'd like to go a little deeper on you know how the connection happened after um, Vince Flynn passed away. I know you said there were a few pages already written of the novel that you eventually um, went on to finish, but. How did your name become like part of that running of, of who's going to carry on the legacy? I'm just curious about that. Well, I like I said, I've written a lot of books of my own and, you know, had a number of New York Times bestsellers. And then I had been called years ago by the um, by the Robert Ludlum estate to continue a series that he had done. And I initially it was kind of one of those weird calls out of the blue where you think almost you think it's a hoax or something. And. I initially turned it down and thought, you know, I'd, uh, it seemed like a weird thing to do, but, but I started thinking about it. I thought it might be fun to do something different. So I did a few of those books um, and people really liked them. And so when Vince died, you know, my, I remember my wife calling me and telling me um, from work she had heard it. And, you know, it was a real tragedy. He was a real young guy. And I thought kind of selfishly, you know, I hope somebody good continues that series because it'd be terrible to see that character just sort of end. I mean, he didn't even die or any or retire or anything, just sort of story ended. And a few weeks later, somebody called and, and asked if I would want to kind of throw my name in uh, to do that. So I loved the character and, and uh, thought, sure. Um, so they asked for some ideas and I sent him some ideas, but I said, you know, I probably won't do any of these in the end. I, I'll change my mind like 10 times before I finish the book. And I figured I wouldn't get the job because of that. Um, but they called a few days later and said, yeah, that'd be great. So I embarked on, I took, that took a long time. I got a three month extension on that one because I said, I have to sit down and reread all the books again in order and all right. take you know, notes and figure out all the, the whole universe and the character and all this stuff. I mean, I'd always read it as a fan. I didn't. Right. Yeah, Casually for fun. What was the first gun he ever used or whatever? I'm wondering writing this series, is it almost like writing as a ghostwriter? Um, you know, Jack knows I'm a friend of Anthony Boza who, who co-writes. And I would say in a way, ghostwrites for all these celebrities, whether it's Slash, Derek Jeter, uh, Tommy Lee. And I, I think it's like fair to say, you know, these guys are not slaving away on a keyboard like it's their story, but it's written by Anthony Boza. So I wonder when you're writing Red War, do you have to constantly think, is this how Vince Flynn would write it? Uh, you know, I did. When, when I wrote The Survivor, the first book, I really the idea was to write a forgery. I mean, the, he had written three pages of that book. I didn't want anybody to know what three pages those were. <laughs> I was constantly thinking about that. You know, I mean, right down to, you know, I'd write a square word and I think, did Vince ever use that? And I'd go and scan through all his books for it. So definitely then. Now a lot less, though, because, you know, the world's changed. I mean, it's kind of weird to think that he died so recently, but he would have never known about ISIS, um, the rise of Russia on, back onto the world stage. I mean, you know, the turmoil in American politics. So you have to follow that. And he would have if he had continued writing. You know, he'd be writing about those things. So now it's more of a, you know, kind of a thematic thing. You know, it, 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 am I writing in the spirit of Vince? But you, you have to 
stay with the times. Did uh, Vince leave like any premises behind or notes or anything that, you know, you were able to draw on or was it really like coming in with a you know blank sheet and you're having to make it up now? It was all in his head. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was, I thought there was because the way I write books is I write big outlines and do all the research and then I start writing. So when they said he has three pages done, I thought, Oh, well there's probably a whole kind of outline done and all his ideas and all his research sitting in his office. And then when I asked for it, I thought, yeah, that's not how he wrote. He just went kind of, you know, page one (laughs) and started typing. So, you know, ask questions before you take jobs. Um, but so no, you know, I mean, and you can't, I mean, as a thriller writer, you might have vague ideas in your head about themes or characters you'd be interested in, but because the world's changing so fast, you, you know, you're, you're coming up with your idea pretty much right before you start writing. So it'll feel current when the book still comes out. Well, hopefully it will. And I was having a conversation with, uh, with someone the other day, actually about this subject, about, you know, novelists who write in this genre. And I was just thinking about it, you know, the world is, is moving so quickly and there are so many different threats out there, escalating threats, new, new types of threats, uh, it, it just things happening all over the world all of the time that it's like there's so much material for, you know, a guy like you to mine from that. It's like even take you and, and you know, all the other big mainstream thriller writers. And there's more happening in the world than all of you collectively <laughs> can cover. Yeah. And it does change. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, Vince was really focused on, um, uh, you know, terrorism, uh, Islamic terrorism. So. Now, with the rise of Russia, again, you know, it was a completely different subject matter that he'd never dealt with because that wasn't what was happening right. when he was writing. And so I've kind of taken off in that direction because this is what people are thinking about. You know, maybe next time it'll be China because, you know, people are really thinking about that yeah. again. Um, or it'll go back to, you know, ISIS will regroup and, and it'll go back to that. So it is kind of fun because – you know, it's not like you have to get the same thing over and over and over again. It's it's always a, a changing landscape. So, how did you come to this book, Red War? I mean, how did how did this idea occur to you? And you know, can you tell us a little bit about what the book's about? Yeah, this book um, it's basically about uh, the president of Russia, who is essentially. Uh, Vladimir Putin, I, you know, I was doing research on him and he has such a great story that yeah. there's no point in changing it. Um, and he gets brain cancer. Um, so Vladimir Putin is obsessed with maintaining power. He's concerned that if he ever loses it, somebody will put a bullet in the back of his head. He's obsessed with the loss of power of, you know, the dictators, recent dictators like Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein, who have not done very well, right. you know, when they lost power. So he gets brain cancer and he has to figure out while he's weak and he's getting treatment and he doesn't even know if he's going to survive. But he knows if somebody finds out, whether it's the West or whether it's the people he's surrounded himself with, he's not going to last long. Somebody's going to move in on him. And so he has to figure out a way to distract the world and to keep this secret. And the best way he figures out is to attack NATO in the Baltics in this case. And it's an interesting dynamic. I, I've been to do something about Russia and a war, but truthfully, it's hard to come up with a realistic motivation for Vladimir Putin to attack NATO. It's, I mean, it could be a war, but 
in the end, it's a poodle, you know, kind of nipping at a tiger. And this is a d- very different, though. This made it work for me in my mind because he's not really trying to win. He doesn't want to, you know, invade Europe or even necessarily keep the Baltics. He just needs to create a really bloody, horrible conflict long enough to distract people to see if he can hold on to power. Well, so, I mean, that was the whole premise behind doing East Ukraine was that it was this knife that he could twist to drive up nationalism inside Russia. Exactly. He's, I mean, you got to hand it to the guy. I mean, he can punch above his weight. You know, his country has an economy about the size of Texas's, <laughs> and he can muck up, you know, the world. Like, it, it, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, when you hear, like, Americans talking, I mean, one person, is an educated person, told me this. She was like, I think Vladimir Putin is the most powerful person in the world. I was like, what? Really? Like, why do you think that? But like you said, he's somebody who is able to punch above his weight class. Yeah. And, you know, if you consider, I mean, Russia maybe in the end is not super powerful. They, they can't, they don't have a big economic hammer to swing. You know, their military is okay. But yeah, they can't really not, project themselves around the world the way, you know, the United States yeah. can. I mean, even their Navy is like, to call that even a blue water Navy is maybe being yeah, overly complimentary. <laughs> so... But he has he's very powerful within his country and um, like much more so than an American president or a European you know leader could be ever be. Right. And um, he has the ability to project power in, you know, asymmetrical ways. So, I mean, he and then that sort of projected in this book is, you know, he's the villain of the book, certainly, and he's causing a lot of death and destruction. But every decision he makes is pretty rational if you consider his goal is just to stay in power. Right. I mean, he's taking the steps necessary to stay in power. And so and the, the book is about, you know, this, uh, you know, a stand-in for, uh, for Vladimir Putin, you know, having uh, brain cancer. And so w- what unfolds in the book? What do you think readers should know? Um, you know, our, our hero Mitch Rapp ends up getting deployed to Russia itself, if I read, uh, if I read the book correctly. Yeah, which is fun because, you know, Mitch is a good desert fighter, speaks Arabic, looks he can pass, you know, as a as an Arab. But in Russia, he's a little lost. So it's kind of fun to throw things that he's never had to deal with at him. He doesn't speak Russian, um, doesn't really know the the operating territory, doesn't like the cold very much. (laughs) So. um, So, yeah, and he has to be deployed there because, frankly, no one can figure out what's going on. That's that's sort of the fundamental thing in the book is. It's not like he's trying to keep it secret. So what you end up with is Russia, a Russian president who like Putin, who's incredibly rational. Like if you ever look at what Putin does, I mean, he's there's a reason for it. He's trying to get something. Um, And all of a sudden he's doing things that don't seem um, like he's going after any particular anything in particular. He's just sort of breaking dishes and they finally figure out through Mitch and others that that's the point. He's trying to break dishes so that everybody will pay attention right. to the dishes. When you were writing this book and researching it, were you able to talk to any, um, you know, people in the American intelligence community about who have had to work in Russia in the past? Cause I know it's like, yeah. apparently it's a very stressful hair raising experience. A few. And they're, they're, they have a very interesting take on the Russians in that, the Russians see us as their enemy. So, or, well, Putin does. I don't know that the Russian people do. 
and sort of period full stop. So anytime you deal with them and you think, hey, we have, you know, in this case, maybe we have a mutual, you know, goal, like Chechen, say Chechen terrorism, right? Nobody wants that. They say they're not really working with you. They, they're trying to get something from you. They're kind of interrogating you and trying to get you to reveal things and all this, but that's the goal. You can't be friends with them because it's in their best interest, certainly in Vladimir Putin's best interest, to keep us as an enemy because it's, it's good for his, uh, his base likes it and he can play it up. It's sort of the role that America has taken on places like Iran and stuff where we're just good, like if something goes wrong in your country, Venezuela being a perfect example, you know, blame it on the Americans. It wasn't our incompetence. No, the Americans sabotaged our economy or blew something up or whatever. I remember uh, just after the, the 2016 election, there was a lot of talk about um, the tr- incoming Trump administration wanting to work with Russia and cooperate with Russia and have a closer relationship, um, which, you know, of course, didn't really happen so much in the end. But um, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was a uh, CIA case officer, and he was like, listen, the American president can order the CIA to work with Russia and the Russian president can order the FSB to work with the CIA. And it's still not going to happen because these institutions have just spent too long at each other's throats and they've just been sitting in the same cafes in, you know, Rome or Barcelona or, you know, Algiers, wherever it is, just mean mugging the hell out of each other that there's just no way that these organizations can cooperate no, and it's every. It's like every um, administration does this. Remember, you know, under the Obama administration, they actually had Hillary Clinton with the reset button. Yes. we were going to reset our. Mm-hmm. And and I think every American president probably says, "There's really nowhere on paper. There's no real reason for us to be enemies here. I mean, we have roughly the same goals, and but it's just not going to work. Right. The, the the whole point is that we're. Me. They use that as propaganda. They use it as an excuse, and it's somebody to get their base pumped up about. So um, I feel like you're wasting your time. I think if I was president, I'd come up and say, "I'm my goal is to make our relationship with Russia worse," because you might as well. I mean, it's it's not going to get better. You have to see them as an opponent, even if there's no particular. You can't really figure out what you're fighting about, but you're going to fight. Yeah, I mean, I guess you have to come to an understanding that it's a it's a transactional relationship at best, and um, yeah. you know any notion that you're going to be able to reset uh, you know relations with Russia and think that they're going to just ignore the long history between our two countries is uh, unrealistic. I think that's exactly the best description of it. It's transactional. If if something happens that is absolutely one thing and it's in our best interests, both our best interests to fix it, we could probably get together and fix it. And while probably stabbing each other in the back the whole time, and then at the end of that transaction, we're going to go right back to the way we were. I'm wondering, was there a pivotal pivotal moment with all the focus on Russia, with Crimea and stuff like that, that you said – you know what, I want this next Mitch Rapp novel, Red War, to focus on Russia. What, what, what particular point made you decide on that? It's, you know, it's for me, it's my whole history. Um, I loved the Cold War thrillers. And I have to say, huge disappointment of mine that the Soviet Union fell right before I became a thriller writer. <laughs> because I just loved, like, the Tom Clancy and 
Rupert Ludlam and Le Carre. I just love the whole game between two major powers and the very sophisticated opponent. And terrorism is, ter- is, is, is really scary and it's really interesting to write about, but it's a completely different type of story. You know, it's, it's the thing that makes it d- dangerous is that it's low tech and that um, Random. And there's no real great game going on. So when Russia started to rise again, I have to say I, I secretly felt a little giddy and I thought, oh, I get a writer's, I'm going to get a writer thriller finally about Russia. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something um, much more uh, frightening about squaring off with, you know, trained intelligence professionals uh, or the assets that they were running during the Cold War. I mean, that 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 environment was so complicated and so difficult to work in. Like, if you go back and do some research on, like, when we used to when we started dealing with terrorism in a more in earnest way in the 1980s or 1970s, you would have the KGB watching us the entire time, following our our carriers around. Um, I'm, I'm referencing the um, Operation Eagle Claw, um, where we we went to Iran in 1980 to rescue American hostages held in Iraq, and we we I mean we have we were uh, having our special operations people followed around. They were driving uh, trucks, empty trucks around Fort Bragg to make it look like Delta force was still there because we knew that they were, the base was being watched and the unit was being watched by the Russians. I mean, that is just Al Qaeda could never, ever do anything like that. No. And, and, you know, the opponents were different. So I created, and I did this about, I think two books ago, I created a Russian opponent for Mitch Rapp who was almost as equal, you know, which is not right. really probably going to happen, you know, out of the, any Arab or Middle Eastern force. But, you know, there's a guy who had gone into spec ops in Russia after getting kind of washing out of biathlon, the Olympic training camp mm-hmm. there. And, you know, he was a serious operator and Mitch had never really faced anybody like that. You know, Mitch was always head and shoulders above his opponent. And I thought it would be really interesting to see how he reacts to somebody who, you know, the difference between them is kind of inches. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So the book, Red War, is out now, right? Yes. Okay. And the, and the yeah. audio book as well. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk at all about any future plans for, uh, for the series? Yeah, you know, the next one is uh, I'm about halfway done with it. And I wanted to go back to a much more of a classic sort of Vince Flynn um, structure. This one was really grand in scope. I mean, you got naval wars going on and things like that. <clears throat> so a little different than, you know, maybe the traditional rap uh, book. So the next one I thought, you know, what am I, what is this going to be about? And I thought, I just kind of want it to be about Mitch Rapp kicking ass. <laughs> and that's sort of my, my, my general idea that's what it's going to be about. Mitch Rapp kicking ass. The the pace at which you and Vince Flynn wrote these books is just incredible looking at it because the fact that the series started in 2010 and we're 17 books deep. I mean, no, no, it started before that. It was, um, 2010 is when American assassin came out, yeah. which is the first book in the series chronologically, but not the first book in the series written. Gotcha. So then when, when were the books, yeah. uh, written first? Um, 
Man, I'm trying to think. It's funny. He and I started at the exact same time, and I can't think of when that was. It would have been mid-90s. Okay. Early. early All right, because I just saw American Assassin release 2010, and I'm like, wow, the the pace at which these books are coming out. But, I mean, it still is a fast pace. The fact that this book just came out less than a month ago, and you're already working on the next one, it's it's a lot of work. Writing is basically like standing on a treadmill that never turns off. (laughs) Yeah. you do. You you know, the only time off I have is when I turn a book into the to my editor, Vince's editor, and I hope she I always hope secretly she's on vacation or really busy and she's not gonna get back to me. Cause you know, I don't the book's done and I don't really think about the next editorial to do. But once the editorial's done, you know, I take the weekend off and the next book starts. So wow. every you know, once a year. Um you every every April it has to go in. You guys are a machine. I mean, I uh, was putting out a novel. Uh, let's see, like once every two years, um, and it's been actually been three years now because I took time to work on my memoir instead of the next novel. So now that that's wrapped up, I'm having to go back to the half finished novel and, and reread it to see what the hell I actually wrote and pick it up again. Well. And that's one of the benefits to doing it fast is you don't have that issue right, of, right. I forgot where I was going with this. <laughs> or hopefully you don't. Usually you don't. What's the writing process for you, by the way? Do you write these at your home where you're with us right now, or do you go somewhere remote to do it? You know, wherever. I, I had, when I was younger and I just starting out, you know, I think everybody tries to find their process, what works for them. And so I had all kinds of schemes and, I had this nice office with a nice view and everything. And what I realized was once I started writing, I couldn't see any of it anyway. So I sort of got pushed down to the basement. And um, I'm afraid my wife's next step is to get me out into the garage. But truth be told, it wouldn't make any difference. So, um, yeah, I do. I just I have a laptop wherever I am. I work and uh, I write really huge outlines. And then I can probably write a little well, I'm probably a little strange the way I write, but I write really elaborate outlines. And then once the outline's done, um, I don't uh, write the book in order. So I just pick which chapter I feel like writing. So I might start on chapter 50 and then just kind of put it all together. And then the second time uh, through, the second time through, I do it in order to make sure, you know, it makes sense. But um, that yeah. works for me. I'm not sure it worked for ever, anybody else, but yeah, I could never do that. That's like Leonardo da Vinci level type, uh, thriller <laughs> writing. I, I, <laughs> I would go nuts. Well, keep in mind though, I do have the really elaborate outline. Right, so I'm right. waiting, you know, I have the, the, that chapter outlined. And so I know where I'm going. Are, and then if I, if I go somewhere on a tangent, I put a note in there and to remind myself that I did. Are you one of those guys then that your uh, your outline is almost like a novella in of itself? Yeah, I mean, probably the worst of the bunch. I think um, somebody once told me Michael Palmer writes longer outlines than I do, but I've never asked him. But yeah, so my my outline for this book, so my book will probably come in around a hundred thousand words, and my outline's forty thousand words. Okay, yeah, so, so the whole frame is there. Yeah, yeah I mean it's. It's a little like, remember high school, you know, you just try to pad out every word into two words to make it long enough. That's kind of my writing process because the whole story is there. You know, the, a lot of the dialogue, the characters, the description, the research, it's all in my outline. And I just have to make it 
you know, fun to read. I just have to turn it into something that's read as opposed to a list of facts. Do, do you do any world travel in order to get yourself acclimated with, you know, these cultures that a character like Mitch is going to be embedded in? Yeah, a lot. <clears throat> I've lived in, um, I hate writing about places that I haven't been. So I've lived in Turkey, uh, Morocco. I live in Spain actually now. Um, oh, wow. Africa. I had no idea that we're talking to you from Spain. That's crazy. We are. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. It's like night for me. Oh, wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I've lived all over the world, lived in London. Um, and so all those places, um, I can kind of draw on, though I've definitely discovered that there's a drawback to that too, and that you trust your memory. And then, so if I ever make a mistake about a place, it's inevitably a place that I've lived and not a place that I really sat down and research. Cause I think, oh no, I definitely remember that's the way it was. And, uh, then I get beat up really bad. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I, I know a lot of our audience is going to be excited to read Red War. I had no idea that we were talking to you from Spain. That's really cool. I, th- I thought you were still here in the States. Um, and you guys could follow Kyle online, kylemills.com, at kylemillsauthor on Twitter and Instagram. As I said, Red War is available now. That's the book. People can see it on the video if they're watching the YouTube um, available now also as an audio book. Anything else that you're working on uh, that, that you want to let the audience know about before we wrap this up? No, that's about it. I other books. I, I have one that I've been working on for 10 years. I have 10 pages. So I keep telling people, you know, 400 years, it'll be done. Um, but uh, yeah, so, but yeah, you can find the book anywhere. Actually, we've been really lucky. The fans have been great the book debuted at number one on the new york times list awesome and uh it's hanging in there at number two next week so um i appreciate all the fans running out and buying it and all the great feedback i've gotten from them so uh if anybody wants to talk about the book my website's kylemills.com and uh, i got an email address on there and i, I answer them all my emails so shoot me your thoughts excellent thank you so much for taking the time to do this kyle And hopefully uh, a lot of people in our audience are going to pick up the book. I'm sure they will. Yeah, I hope they have fun with it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. We'll have to have you on again when the next one comes out. Absolutely. Mitch Rapp kicking ass. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's the whole story. (laughs) And this will be up uh, tomorrow, and I'll send you over all the uh, info when we have it up. Okay, sounds good. Shoot it out as well. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Have a nice night. You too. That went well, man. Uh, you know, I had no idea that he was over in Spain. So people might notice on the on the stream uh, a little bit of out of sync with the audio and the video and a few connection issues. But overall, we made it work. Yeah. And uh, interesting guy, man. I think interesting background of his father and his world travel. And, and I think uh, a huge responsibility on your shoulders. I mean, it's probably a nice payday to have to take over for someone like Vince Flynn. But it's also just this huge responsibility of, you know, you have this this reader base that's going to say, I would think, ah, he's not the same as Vince Flynn. I can't read his work, you know, and you have to keep up, as he said originally, like a forgery to make sure this is what his audience is going to love. Yeah, I imagine the trick to that is to try to be faithful to the the tone and the character rather than try to write word for word what you think Vince Flynn would have written, you know, if he had if he had still been alive. Um, but yeah, no, that, that is a lot of, uh, that's a challenge to take up. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can only imagine. I think writing in itself, writing a book is extremely hard. I would think it's not something it's I've like tr- ever done. It's like trying to write like a Tolkien novel, like here's the sequel to The Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I think people are going to buy it, Jack. Well, <laughs> the only experience I could say that you have, I have none, would be, you know, even though we don't know if this thing's ever going to see the light of day, hopefully, but you helped to write Jim West's book, his memoir, and it's got to be hard to write from someone else's tone. And you were, you know... And I should point out, Jim is a writer as well, but you were instrumental in in what will hopefully cut, see the light of day one. I don't day. know. Yeah, I mean, you gotta push Jim to <laughs> to actually do something with it. I uh, I wrote like forty forty five thousand words of the book and uh, gave it to Jim, and I was like, look, you gotta you gotta finish it. It's your story, you know. Um, but it, that was that's incredibly difficult. And honestly, I would not do it again if someone asked me to. I have been asked on a few occasions if I'd want to like ghostwrite someone else's book, and I've always turned it down. I, I did it for Jim just because uh, he's a, a close friend of mine. Um, is it just that much harder to write from? You know, Jim has a very distinct tone, and it's nothing like yours, right? And writing from that tone. It's just, I can only speak for myself. I mean, like, uh, like Kyle was saying, everyone has their own process that they, that they use when they write. And just for me personally, like to try to put myself in someone else's mind and write in their voice is just incredibly difficult. It's, it's, it's more like being an actor than being a writer almost. Yeah. And that's the only like comparison I can think Well, and I'm not an actor. I don't, <laughs> I don't have, I don't have those abilities. So, um, for me to like sit down and write my own novel or, um, even write my, my memoir, which is of course in my voice, but it's still difficult to write because you're writing about yourself. Um, but to write something like that or to write a novel, um, just sit down and write in my own voice. It really isn't that big of a deal, but to try to, imagine myself in someone else's shoes and write from that perspective. Um, what, I, I should say not a fictional character, but from an actual real person who I know. Yeah. Uh, that's really difficult. Yeah. The, the comparison I could draw that I did during the interview is just Anthony Boza, who's become a friend of mine and uh, him writing Artie Wang's book in particular. I've written, I've read several of his books, but Artie Wang is a guy that if you listen to the Howard Stern show, it's like, you know, this guy's tone to a science because you listen to him every day on a show. And if you read that book, it is completely in Artie Wang's voice. And he has said himself, he's written three books at this point for him, but he's Artie has said himself during interviews. It's not my book. It's my stories, but it's Anthony's book. And I think that really is a real skill. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony must be like a serious talent that he's able to go and like meet with people like that and observe them and see how they talk and what their tone is and their little idiosyncrasies and then translate that into a book. That's a that is a real skill. Yeah. And I mean, I would think that's why not only has he done his book like Slash, Tommy Lee, Tracy Morgan, Derek Jeter. That's that's why they come to him. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, great guy, by the way. I'd love to have him on at some point, even though it's you know not military related, but just interesting dude. But I bet he's got tons of interesting stories. Yeah, he does. He does. Um, so, at, wrapping things up here into some other things, um, you know, post interview that I wanted to mention, I saw a lot of kind of inner drama going on with the Green Beret Foundation, which several women who worked there were very critical of soft rep. <laughs> Right. I mean, and now they've been uh, well, depending on who you talk to, they they resigned or were fired or they resigned just before they were fired. Um, But, yeah, I I mean, I don't know. I guess some of them feel that I'm like the devil incarnate. I I don't know. But um, 
I, I thought about writing an article about what was going on with the Green Beret Foundation. I kind of decided not to because it seems like it's high drama and low substance. Um, but now it, it's come out in the media, and there's a, there's a, a news story so, uh, a reporter wrote about what was going on or it continued to go on there. And I'm not going to like weigh in on it with, with my like thoughts or opinion. Well, I, I'm not going to give an opinion, but I'll just say. It's uh, it's kind of sad to see the Green Beret Foundation sort of like imploding like this, yeah. and all this like interrelational drama, um, you know, high school musical type bullshit. Um, whoever's right and whoever's wrong, I don't know. I don't have the facts, um, uh, so I'm not going to weigh in. Just say it's sad to see that happen because I know that that organization has done some good work over the years. Um, so hopefully they get things straightened out. But it sounds like now there's a lawsuit going on and. It's going to be a mess, I'm sure. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, as you said, you don't have all the facts, so maybe it would just be speculating, but do you think it's just people within that organization? Do you think the organization is still like a good foundation doing things for, you know, post-service Green Berets? Or I don't know. I couldn't speak to that. I, I mean, I, I've... I'm sure that somewhere in the organization there are good people, right? I, yeah. I mean, I, it's not it's not an evil organization yeah. by any means. It's not a, it's not. They a, think we're an evil organization. Hail Cobra! No, it's <laughs> not like that. Um, it, maybe maybe there's just some a few bad actors yeah. or something like that. I, I really don't know, but I, I do think that the organization has good people in it and that they've done good work, and and hopefully they can continue to go and do some good work. Um, and there are organizations we we know for a fact that do great work, like Gallant Few. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and sometimes they get involved in, or, or somebody in the organization gets involved in, in some drama. But that doesn't mean that yeah. everyone working there is a bad person by any of stretch course. of the imagination. Um, so I, I just hope they can get things back on track and um, you know continue to serve you know some guys out there who need help. And then also you have a study coming up on politics in America, Hidden Tribes. Oh, no, no, no. It's not my study. Uh, Hey, I'm going to tell the audience that basically two minutes before we recorded this interview, I'm like, Jack, what are you working on? I said I I wrote wrote an article about the study. About a study. I scribbled Uh, this on a page, so forgive me. No, it's a very interesting study called uh, Hidden Tribes. Uh, You can go out there and find it. Um, it, it's, it's an, a study that was done, um, by interviewing people, um, uh, you know, getting a good sample size and interviewing Americans about their political beliefs. And it, it starts to kind of categorize them and show how they feel and what they think. And there's a number of really interesting conclusions in there. They conclude that most Americans fall into a group that they call the exhausted majority. They're people who are just kind of burned out with the political extremism and partisan nonsense out there. Um, the two extremes being they, they sort them in the study into what they call progressive activists and devoted conservatives. So if we were to put a, a caricature on it, this would be like, uh, you know, the woke, uh, you know, progressive liberal um, activist personality, you know, the person who is, uh, you know, the triggered liberal crying because Donald Trump got elected and every, every day is day to day crisis. The, the other extreme, the de- what they call the devoted conservative would be, 
you know, the, the, again, it's a caricature, but these two personalities are caricatures that actually exist. Um, this one would be, you know, the, the middle-aged overweight white guy wearing the mega hat who is, uh, you know, fairly racist and, uh, is deathly afraid of anything changing in America. Uh, those are both relatively small populations as the study finds out. There are small groups of people, small, but vocal, small, but vocal, and they are able to kind of dominate um, much of the political conversation in this country to the detriment of the exhausted majority. Yeah, I, I, which I get because myself included, we kind of check out, I think, when, when we see that's, all this. That's what they say in the study is that people, um, they're jaded um, and they just kind of like gloss over. They're, they're exhausted by it. I mean, if you look at the Brent Kavanaugh thing, my, my timeline, and I really would say about 50% of my friends are liberal living in New York City. About 50% of my friends are people in this community who like listen to this podcast, stuff like that, more conservative. And it's split between people who think like Brett Kavanaugh is, you know, a total is a ra- rapist, you know, even though there's right. no solid evidence. And then the people who are literally like, I'm having a beer because Brent Kavanaugh is the new Supreme Court justice. It's, it, it's like the, there's no middle ground. No, it's, no. It, yeah. And the scary thing is it's the politics of what you choose to believe, because yeah. if you're a Republican then or you're a conservative, then Kavanaugh is innocent. And if you're a liberal or Democrat, then Kavanaugh is guilty. And the reality is none of these people have a fucking clue whether he's innocent or guilty. We don't know. Yeah, I I think it was uh, Nick Gillespie from Reason. I saw that he wrote something that was like, could I think that he was innocent and still think he seems like a frat boy douchebag? Like, <laughs> I'm in that category. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm of the category uh, when it con- comes to the woman, Dr. Uh, Ford. Kind of the same thing I felt about that girl at Columbia, the mattress girl, Emma Solkowitz. Um, I believe that they were sexually assaulted at some point in life. It's just a question of did it really go down the way they say it went down? Yeah. You know, what was uh, was that that mattress girl at Columbia really raped by another Columbia student the way that she described it doesn't look like it. I mean, I, I think the guy has been completely exonerated at this point. But do I s- believe that she was sexually assaulted sometime in her life prior to that? I yeah. think I think it's quite possible. You know, um, what happened to Dr. Ford? I mean, was she sexually assaulted some, at some point in her life? I mean, quite possibly. But did it go down exactly the way she remembers it? Was it this guy Kavanaugh? Was he really the one that did it? Yeah. I mean, the, any anybody who talks to, a, say, a police detective or a public prosecutor who has dealt with rape cases and, and child abuse and human trafficking, any of these sorts of things can tell you that it's just so much more complicated than fucking throwing on like a Me Too hashtag. I mean, we are trying to get down to facts and uh, prove these things and get a jury to convict. I mean, it is fucking difficult in these stories. Um, of what happens to people. I mean, they they sometimes some cases are black and white, sure. And, and I mean, we're all gr- glad when we can get a, a slam dunk in the court system and put some really bad people in prison. But so many of them are just shades of gray. Yeah, uh, you know. And I don't know if you've seen the people on you know, and they're totally the people that you're talking about in this study, far left. You know, people on Twitter. I have seen mainly females. I believe women. 
And, and uh, but I mean, but also there's been women flat out saying, and they're prominent women. They're like verified on Twitter. They're not th- these aren't trolls. magazine editors. And, yeah, yeah, saying flat out, I don't really care if men get falsely accused of stuff and it ruins their life. Like the bigger picture is believing all women, and it's like yeah. that's a crazy thing to say. It is, a crazy and they thing act to like say. this is a minor minor issue. But I, you know, I could tell you. One of the, um, you know, Duke lacrosse players I went to elementary school with and middle school. And, you know, it it was pretty crazy seeing this guy's face on magazine and newspaper covers. And turned out, if you watch the 30 for 30 documentary uh, on ESPN, he wasn't even there at the time. He was like at an ATM machine, completely exonerated. I mean, sometimes women lie. I mean, people lie. And it's interesting because I uh, well, I got called up to jury duty and I was interested to see how that was going to pan out if they actually called me into the room and asked me questions because I, uh, a friend of mine, they, they put him up on the stand and they asked him, um, do you think police officers tell the truth when they're under oath? And my, I mean, my answer would be, well, police officers are human beings and they lie. I mean, yeah. do I, do I think police officers lie under oath? Yeah. Every day. Sure. I mean, so, I mean, women <laughs> are also human beings and I think human beings lie all the freaking time. So, I mean, I can't just make a, a blanket statement. Like I believe women or I believe men or sure. whatever. I mean, people are fucked up. Absolutely. There's even circumstances I could tell you that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail on this one. But if you look up registered sex offenders in my area, I've seen people I went to high school with. And, um, you know, one of them for there's actually several, but one of them I remember in particular is a you know black guy that I went to school with. And I've talked to other people in, you know, his neighborhood about what went down. And from what I've heard, you know, it was honestly a case of. If I, if you believe these people, I don't know the full story, but like of a white girl, daughter of a police officer doing something with a group of black guys, regretting it, race could play a, a you know part in, in that type of thing too. Well, there's no question. I, I mean, I've I posted something about this actually on Twitter myself that there's a history in this country of black men. Uh, being accused of offending the honor of white women. And in the past, there were black men who were in boys even who were lynched yeah. because of that. So, I mean, of course, race plays a factor. Yeah, which I think has gotten completely lost in this conversation. No one wants to talk about it yeah. because it's just one of those things where if you voice any sort of um, skepticism, then you're like a de facto rapist or a rape apologist. And it's like, holy shit. I, I just want to make sure that, you know, the guilty parties go to prison yeah. <laughs> and that innocent people aren't uh, thrown in prison or worse, you know, uh, killed or whatever the hell. And, and I would say there should be a consequence there for those who falsely accuse. And I don't think there really is right now. Yeah, no, there definitely should be. I mean, if you make a, a, a bad faith accusation against someone i'm not talking about someone who made a mistake yeah and it's a hazy or, memory yeah no. or you know you were blacked out drunk or whatever no, the, I, I would mean, say like the duke lacrosse uh you know the that's woman a who came forward case. she yeah. flat out lied about everything and turned out to be a murderer as well so yeah i mean what was that case back in the uh it's like back in the 80s where there's a, a girl claimed she was raped in central park yeah that was uh I, and i know al sharpton got involved yes. and all that yeah and it turned Roderick, out, or it turned out she made the whole thing up. Yeah, entirely. Yeah, and, and ruined this guy. Wasn't it Pagonis's wife? Yeah. Uh, I hope I'm not, you know, confusing the uh, names here because these are all like old cases. But yeah, it's 
that there there needs to be some consequence. I would think when you knowingly falsely accuse someone, not that it was the haze of a memory or you know. I mean, when it just like I said, when it comes down to like the politics of choosing what to believe, it's like I, I'm I'm not a believer. I don't have the faith in humanity to just have this like kind of blind acceptance of what I'm told. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people, you know, uh, can take to social media and talk about what, a that I'm a bad person or whatever, <laughs> but I mean, the facts are the facts. Yeah. And unfortunately in this case with, with Kavanaugh, I mean, I think we all wish we had the facts and we don't. Um, I was going to mention uh, before we wrap this up that we mentioned that Like War is going to be on. The authors of Like War are going to be on next week. That's postponed. They're definitely going to be on. I'm just changing the date. I got of that. one more chapter to go in the book. I'm almost done. Awesome. Well, they'll they'll definitely be on, but not next week. Cool. Uh, the next uh, guest we have is another old school veteran, Stuart Steinberg. So, which you got me in touch with. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. Um, there's somebody else I'm working on too. Um, uh, yeah, a book author who wrote an interesting book. Another little obscure part of special operations history. Um, that that'll be a, a fucking amazing interview if we can get him on here. Nice. And then, and then the next high profile interview is a certain general who we may have in studio. I, I'm still working on a date. Is it General vague. Flynn? <laughs> no. Can you get General Ge- Flynn on, please? He he was on. I know, remember that? I yeah. know he was. It wasn't the best connection, but yeah, you guys could look back. If you go to softrepradio.com, because it's not all on Apple Podcasts. Did, did you see the report that, that um, there was this guy who was like a GOP staffer? Um, I can't remember his name offhand. It was like Paul Smith or something like that. And uh, it this guy committed suicide, allegedly, and he left a note. And apparently the note is like in all caps, all capital letters, no foul play whatsoever. That was a suicide note. Wow. And uh, according to the what I saw on, uh, on CNBC, this guy was working for uh, General Flynn to obtain the deleted Hillary Clinton emails. So the conspiracy theories are about to fly, um, and I'm not trying to propagate that, but I mean... Who the fuck leaves a suicide note that says no foul play no, whatsoever? <laughs> what? Extremely strange. It's like, who's that guy? Was it uh, Seth Richards, the guy's name? Uh, the DNC staffer? I don't think it was Richard. Seth, uh, I know who you're talking about. And he was gunned down in like a, a hipster neighborhood in, in Washington, D.C. where nobody gets gunned down. I mean, he, he got shot in the back, I think, on the way home from a bar. However, and I'll, uh, yeah, they, I was actually just Seth about to Rich. Seth Rich. I yeah. was actually just ama- about to announce this same thing. The family of Seth Rich actually has gone after Sean Hannity and stuff like that. Right, telling him to shut up. Stop, stop putting out conspiracy theories. Yeah, about, I don't want to put out conspiracy theories, but yeah. I mean, this that guy was murdered. I mean, flat out. There's no question about that. And we've never gotten any answers as to what the hell happened to this guy. Yeah. You know, who, who are the perpetrators? What was the motive? His wallet wasn't taken. He wasn't robbed. But apparently the family does not believe the whole Hillary connection. And, you know. I, I mean, it, it could, it, it, I, don't, I don't believe that the Clintons have people suicided yeah, or, yeah. or murdered or anything like that. But, I mean, these are still, like, crazy deaths that, like, we, we never get any explanation for what the hell happened to these people. And it's like, it just kind of, like, falls by the wayside. And it seems like we're all just kind of, like, comfortable not having any answers. Yeah. Scary stuff, man. Well, um, 
as we're wrapping things up here, be sure to check out Crate Club. The uh, and and I should mention, I got an email from Justin, who's running a lot of the stuff at Crate Club, and we have a new warehouse that's up and running. Mm-hmm. So the first shipments, if you're a member, are going out right now as I'm speaking, which is really cool to see of uh, this month's Crate Club. So you know that's exciting to see. Exciting to see us in a new warehouse and people just getting the job done. Uh, so the long-anticipated collaboration watch we did with NFW Watches, that's going to be in the next premium crate. Really awesome to see. Uh, we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. Uh, Scott Whitner and the guys from the Loadout Room are currently working on bringing you 100% custom products in 2019, everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. And we have that camo print that Jason Kenitzer designed with Brandon Webb, um, the Panthera design, which is awesome. I still have my Panthera hoodie. Right now I'm wearing my soft rep shirt, which people are asking me on Instagram. It's vintage now. Yeah, people on Instagram were like, where could I get that? People want to buy them. I was asking Jason Kenitzer. I don't, I don't know if we have any more available. I have. I probably have a good 10 to 12 soft rep T-shirts. Yeah, me too. I can sell them with... You know, <laughs> real deal Jack Murphy sweat, and they're, uh, you know, on eBay. I mean, I still... It would be like a, one of those Japanese panty dispensers, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I still wear all of them. They're all great. And Soft Rep Radio is still going strong. The only one that I guess you could say is outdated is I have the old school uh, with the fist logo, and it says softrep.com. That's no longer the website. Um, and it's got that, like, take on the Black Sabbath quote on the back with the War Pigs lyrics. I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah. We've put out so many T-shirts. Yeah, so. we have. Yeah, people are asking me where they can get them, and I don't know. I have, Jason Kempster might know. I have not one, but both versions of the soft wrap hoodie. Nice. Okay. I have, uh, yeah, I just have a Panthera hoodie. And and I had, I don't have any more, the zip-up soft rep hoodie. I, I got had. the zip-up. Yeah, I think I mine got, got destroyed in the wash like a while I'll, back. I mean, I had it for a while. I'll let you borrow mine. <laughs> I um, want it back. Well, anyway, so back to what we were saying. It, it's a club for men, by men. You can check that a lot at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love this. We've partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog every month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S. sourced, all natural, and they not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. So I don't care if you have a pit bull or if you have a chihuahua. This is just what you're looking for. You can see all of that at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog is going to appreciate it as well, of course. That's C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. I, have course, I of course, also have to mention the Spec Ops channel. As a reminder for those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interview footage covering the most exciting military content today. We have the Premier Show training cell on there. We also have that Inside the Team Room Intelligence Edition, um, which had Sam Faddis and James Powell. That's up on there now? Yeah, we have several oh, of the episodes sweet. up on there. Awesome. Yeah, I know that. Um, I don't I'm, think I'm the moderated, series, I but. moderated that one a little bit and asked the interview questions. And I know why, because... It, you know, I, I, it's weird because I feel like he's revealed his real name so who the, and his face, so who even cares? But I'm going to say the code name. The Odyssean is known to take things, like, way off track sometimes, <laughs> and you had to be there to be like, to be like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about well, right yeah, now. You have a lim- limited amount of time, so you kind of have to, like, steer things and, and hit some of the big points. Yeah. It, it's almost 
part of the reason I think I'm here on this podcast is sometimes you get a lot of guys from the same field yeah, talking. Yeah. And it becomes overly technical. Everything is acronyms. And yeah. sometimes I have to be here and go, what the hell are you guys talking about? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, sometimes I can get into it with some of these guys just talking about like really obscure stuff. Yeah. You, you end up losing the audience. No, you under, I mean, because I'd say I think it's a real good split of like 50 percent of this audience are veterans. 50 yeah. percent aren't. So. Well, I mean, when I get together with certain people, like I tell them, I was like, you know, like. For me, this is it's like a comic book convention because I'm like super into all this weird shit. Yeah. And then you meet somebody else who's into the same weird shit. So it becomes like fucking like some sort of brony convention or something like that, because where the hell else are you going to find somebody who's in this weird yeah. stuff? It's like me and the Odyssean talking about ex-Kiss members like <laughs> Vinnie Vincent and Mark St. John. And people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. Because uh, we both nerd on nerd, nerd out on that. Um so anyway, you check that all out, um, specopschannel.com, $4.99 a month, and we have the app developed by Chris. I think the app for Software Radio is supposed to be out like in days, so be on the lookout for that. There's a news yes. rep app. Um, I, I just saw an email, actually. It's uh, The app is done. The Software Radio app? Yeah, we just, nice. ha- we just have to write a... He needs me and you to write a description of the podcast. Yeah, I could give him the same one that we use for everything. Yeah, yeah. Which is just, you know, it's Green Beret, Army Ranger Jack Murphy, and uh, I put New York Festival's award-winning producer Ian Scott <laughs> Have I, I... I know I've said it on the podcast. Have I told you how I won that award? No. So I won an award when I was producing for Senator Bill Bradley, and uh, here's a guy who got Me too not Bill Bradley, but he did an interview with Charlie Rose. Oh, yeah, Charlie Rose went down. We did a spotlight interview with Charlie Rose, and that won an award, which I really? produced. And if I, and if I could be totally honest, I have that award on my wall. I use it on my resume and everything. But the way I really won that award is I called up Charlie Rose, and he was on speakerphone. And I was like, sir, could you take it off speakerphone? It doesn't sound good. And Charlie Rose said to me, you mean to tell me I'm going to have to hold any serious. I'm going to have to hold this interview hold this phone to my ear during the entire interview. And I was like, yeah, and he's just like, <sighs> and then I put him on. We did it. I, I potted him up on the board. We did an hour interview. It won an award. <laughs> I, uh, that, that was my involvement. I didn't book him or anything. But, I, you know, whatever. Char- Charlie Rose went down, Matt Lauer. And the one that really surprised me was Leonard Lopate. Um, who I, I think he, he was a public radio guy. We went into his studio, uh, Brandon and I, and we did an interview with him about the Benghazi book we did. So this was years ago now. Yeah. And that was probably the best interview I've ever done. Wow. Like him, him and he, his questions were really on point. Um, his producers had gone through the book and like pulled out all the really important po- points. Um, so he's like this nice like public radio figure um, kind of like a legend here in the city. And, uh, and yeah, he went down for uh, the accusation, accusations of sexual harassment in the workplace. You know who I board op to that was the biggest name in that category? I once board op Harvey Weinstein. And he was a super nice guy to me. I saw him downtown, like down in the East Village one time. So Sirius XM has uh, a studio, you know, the one that you've been to, like the main headquarters. Yeah. And then they have one at the at Lincoln Center that they call JALC, Jazz at Lincoln, Lincoln Center. It's a really small studio. And, you know, when someone they don't want to fit in or can't fit into the big studio, they bring them there. Uh, Bob Edwards does a lot of his interviews out of there. And I could tell you, Harvey Weinstein came in by himself, like no entourage, no publicist, and just sat down in the small studio and was a super nice guy. And... 
then you know what went down went down so yeah man i mean you see these these people turn out to be monsters yeah you can't yeah i mean un- unfortunately you can't base it off like one interaction with the person or, or even many interactions you never yeah know. well people like that too are like sociopaths so like they're 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 quite talented at you know throwing up that smoke screen you know like what was that guy schneiderman our uh, our beloved attorney general Oh, the yeah, yeah. And I mean, he, he was good at throwing up the, you know, he was a me too guy throwing up the me too smoke screen behind the scenes. You know, he, he was just a, a fucking a villain. I mean, how else can you put it? Yeah. I, I feel like a lot of those guys end up being, you know, as you've said before, the ones who are like doing it a little too hard. Yeah. The, yeah. They're trying to convince you. you said. Yeah. Hot dogging it. <laughs> hot dogging and showboating and yeah. spotlighting. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed this, man. I thought Kyle was great. Um, yeah. And and go pick up Red War. And like I said, I mean, it takes a real particular talent to be able to pick up such a decorated series um, by a legendary author. You can follow Jack on Twitter at Jack Murphy RGR. You can follow me at Ian Scotto. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. I'm excited for um, Stuart Steinberg next episode. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, um, actually, Stuart got recommended to us by uh, Mike Vining. Yeah, Mike Vining, who is an absolute legend in the community yeah. and, and absolutely one of our favorite guests we've ever had on. I always, I, 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 you know, that first interview with him is the most listened to interview is we've it? ever done. It, yeah. sh- it should be. I yeah. mean, honestly. Yeah. And then we did a part two with him, which didn't get as many lessons. And I think a lot of people are unaware. So if you don't know, yeah, we did two Mike Vining interviews. So you can check those all out. Softrep. Well, now it's softrepradio.com. It has the full archive of everything. Uh, and as I said, we're now on Spotify. So thanks, guys. Thanks for checking this out twice every week. We appreciate it. Audience is still growing, and it's great to see. Listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.